Hey friends, over the next few months, I will be interviewing unique people who have great ideas on how to make radical changes in America's eating habits, boost awareness of our environment, and contribute to the economic health of our country. This is Meryl Kennedy, and this is my podcast. Welcome to Rice Up Your Bowl. This is your host, Meryl Kennedy, and I am here with Dr. Lipscomb of USA Rice and the USA Rice Foundation, and also recently retired from LSU's Rice Research Station. So Dr. Lipscomb is a great friend of mine. He's also here to talk to us all about sustainability, the rice industry, what we can do to continue to move the ball forward on many of these initiatives, and then a little bit of his history just in the rice industry in general, because um, you know he's got a lot of back history of what we've been trying to do as, a, as an industry. So first of all, welcome Dr. Lipscomb. Um, thank you so much for being on Rice Up Your Bowl today with me. Be here. I've had an opportunity to do a number of podcasts, but I'm really excited to be on the one here today with you. Well, thank you. So first of all, I want you to just tell your story a little bit to the audience. So tell us, you know, when did you start in Rice? So I didn't, I, I'm from Gaydon, Louisiana, which is right in the middle of Southwest rice producing, Southwest Louisiana rice producing country. And I did not grow up on a farm, but I had uncles and a, especially a cousin that were rice farmers. And I, I did spend a lot of time on rice farms early on patching levees. And then a little bit later, uh, I was able to, to help grow the crops and drive combines and drive trucks and drive rice carts and operate dryers. So, you know, my history goes back to, I guess, I guess high school. And then I went to LSU and ended up with a PhD at Mississippi State and never thought I'd come back to, to Louisiana, but it worked out that I was able to come back in the early 80s with the LSU Extension Service as a, as a rice specialist on campus in Baton Rouge, did that for about six years, and then had the opportunity to move to the rice station at Crowley uh, in, I think, eight, uh, 1988, and became the rice breeder there, you and know, was in that I, position for about 30 years. I want to stop you for a second, because I think it's pretty important that we realize that the longevity and the history of LSU and how important that has been to rice and rice research. I mean, you were there for 30 years. You're saying even in, as far back before you, we've always had kind of a strong history in Louisiana of rice research. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the rice station was actually the first rice station, uh, certainly in the United States. And as far as I can gather, probably in the Western hemisphere. It was established in 1909. And what's, what's really neat about the history, this wasn't something that came about because LSU said we need a rice research station. This was something that, that the station came about because some of the pioneer farmers and the forward thinking farmers in Southwest Louisiana understood that for the industry to move forward and prosper, and you know, really become established and, and be important economic driver in that area, there was a need for research. And they came together and pressured both 
LSU as well as uh, the USDA to establish a rice research station. And if that had not occurred, it's, it's doubtful that the station would have been established or would have been established as early as it actually was. So from its inception, rice producers in the industry have, have been extremely critical for the success of, of the station. And that certainly continues today. Uh, the scientists there work very closely with rice producers, rice millers such as your, yourself. On an everyday basis. And our, and our checkoff program is just essential to, to the operation and success of, of the research efforts there. And you know, and that's so unusual that, you know, the way that that research station is funded and the checkoff dollars that come from farmers to fund that. So it's not just the state institution that's funding it, it's actually coming from farmers as well. Um, and I think that that's important for people to realize is that the farmers are kind of bought into this idea that research starts there at the university level. And that's, you know, very vital to not only the, you know, the farming industry here in the U.S., but globally too, right? I mean, you. I mean, from 1909, that's a huge history of research that has that has spurred varieties that we have used for now over a century. Um, yeah, and and you know, it's exactly. And you mentioned internationally, and that's a constant battle that we had to deal with or have to deal with in research. We have a lot of foreign people that come in and we train a lot of foreign people and we're often criticized for sending our technology to other countries but that couldn't be further from the truth because yeah we we do perhaps train people to go back and, and be better researchers in their particular locales but they bring so much to us these these students and and visitors that we have come in it's a, it's abso absolutely a two-way street and you know that story needs to be told that having international cooperation and international dialogue is essential for for what we do at the rice station or what i did at the rice station and what others continue to do oh i believe it because just in general um, the value that we, we see um, on an everyday basis of sharing that kind of information. I mean, rice is arguably, if not, in my opinion, the most important grain in the world, right? Because it directly feeds humans um, and feeds most of the world population. And so as we can continue to improve the varieties and improve the yields, um, people all over the world benefit from that. And and we benefit even greater here in, in the U.S. from a lot of those people coming in. So I just think it's fascinating. I, the, I appreciate you sharing that with me because the history and the value is so undervalued, in my opinion, sometimes, um, because we are just something that we should be so proud of, something that we control here ourselves, our seeds and, and the improvements and all the people kind of working on that research. So today, you know, um, you're working more with the USA Rice and the foundation. What does that look like? Um, what's your initiatives today that you're working on, Dr. Lindsay? Well, speaking of the foundation, the foundation is, is a research funding entity of the industry. And the foundation brings in sources of funds from a, a number of different uh, 
parts of the industry. We bring in grant funds. We bring in uh, monies that uh, private companies donate to us. And uh, more and more importantly, the grant funding is critical in what we do. But one of the other very important things that, that I'm doing with the, uh, with the foundation is I have the pleasure of being in charge of the leadership program. And we've got a very rich leadership program in the rice industry. It actually is going on 32 years old. Uh, there have been well over 200 individuals that have been through the program. If you look at the leaders today in the US rice industry, the vast majority of them are alumni of the program. I would hope one day you would be an alumni of the program, but we've had that conversation before. One so, day, Dr. Lipscomb. So anyway. Phenomenal. Many industries don't have this, and I feel like it just gives you that perspective of the entire industry, right? Because it is unique in the fact that we have different growing regions um, around the country, different varieties, um, you know, and that might mean, you know, some varieties of long grain that we grow in the South or some of the medium grain, short grains, sushi rices that we grow in California. So people don't realize the complexities of the rice industry. When you first enter, you might just know your space. So I think what you're doing there is, is big. And I think it's one of the reasons why we have such a phenomenal group at USA Rice and why people that are in the rice industry are so bought in to being there and they stay a long time and they believe in it. Um, so, Yeah, and, and I, just an example of that, uh, we were in hiatus just as everybody else was for well over a year, but we were able to have our first session of the class that should have started a year ago. Awesome. And we did that about three weeks ago, started out in Texas, uh, Texas rice growing areas, ended up in the South Louisiana rice growing areas. And the last thing we did was uh, we were in New Orleans and Russell Marine, Jonathan Hobbs was able to take us out on the river in a, in a mid-river loading facility. And these young people were able to actually watch how rice is loaded on a ship for international transport. And, you know, that's, that's probably the thing that most people in the industry never get to see. Oh, I, uh, look, I mean, there is nothing like being in the middle of the Mississippi River and watching, you know, rice, enter, you know, go into a barge or be loaded onto a ship. I mean, it is phenomenally um, just, it's one of those moments when you realize what you're actually doing, right? I mean, what, what it's all about and the commerce and, and that goes into it and all the people that are involved to make that happen. I, I don't know. It's, it's inspiring to me. I, I could, I could stay on the Mississippi river for a week. I feel like. What's, what's really neat too is you talked about the ge different geographic regions where we grow rice. It's always amazing to see the people from California come to Southwest Louisiana. And one of the things we do is put them on a crawfish boat. <laughs> and that is that is kind of like being, you know, on another planet for them. I mean, you know, they've heard of this, but the whole culture of crawfish and how it interrelates to rice production is, is very eye-opening. And as well, when Southerners go to California and see how things are out there, you know, their rice production, but above and beyond the rice production in rice country in the valley, 
you can drive down the road for five miles and see 25 different crops being grown. And that is just so eye-opening for people to have the opportunity to do that. And, and, you know, other parts of the leadership program that are fantastic is the last session we bring uh, the class to Washington, D.C. during February, during the uh, Government Affairs Committee, and they get to go on Capitol Hill. They get to go into USDA, EPA, all the important federal agencies that impact uh, their day-to-day -day lives. And they start getting a feel for how important it is. And you do, you know this because you're there all the time, but we've got to have a presence in Washington. This, this industry, you know, you know that better than anybody. Yeah, no, people don't realize how much, um, how important that is to have those relationships with our state and federal um, officials because you have to educate them. I mean, many people don't know that rice is even grown in the U.S. Um, unless, you know, maybe you came from a rice growing region. But, you know, if you're from the Midwest and you're making policy on agriculture, you know, that might not even be part of what you grew up with. Um, so a lot of it is educating, you know, people outside of even your local, your local government. But um, it's, you know, it's difficult sometimes. Washington can be, um, I guess, the spider web of, but for the most part, you know, we have good officials and there's several people in Washington that really understand, understand agriculture and the importance of agriculture to, to the U.S. economy, frankly. You know, and a very good example of that is I, I have a very close working relationship with a lot of people at, at EPA, and we have worked closely with EPA, especially in my career at LSU. But EPA has a very negative connotation with, with most rice producers. And if, if most people had the opportunity to go into EPA offices, they'd understand that those are real people. Absolutely. And they're not, you know, and I'm not saying there's not outliers as there are at every agency, but these people are here to help us. And that's the beauty of, of like taking the class to the EPA is they get, they get an appreciation for that. Yeah, no, I think that that's really wise because, you know, many of those government agencies are there to protect people, but also protect us as well as farmers. So, you know, with that being said, there's so much legislation. We heard about it this morning going on in Europe for certain pesticide usage and things like that that are being outlawed. Um, you know, we all know in the rice industry that rice is non-GMO, but many people also don't know that, right? But, you know, we are under a lot of pressure um, for certain pesticides that we use, but I, I personally feel very strongly that globally people should understand that the U.S. is probably one of the safest products, you know, rice products to eat. Um, and that when you're choosing rice that's grown in other foreign destinations, they're not under the same rules and regulations that we're under as far as pesticide usage and things like that. And that we should be proud of the product that we're growing. Um, so I didn't know if you had any thoughts um, on that. I, I know it's a controversial no, topic, but many people don't realize. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, in my career, have been fortunate or maybe unfortunate to have traveled all over the world in many, many countries and have seen rice being produced a lot of different ways. And absolutely, I mean, we've got a lot of countries out there that probably pesticide re registration and regulation 
are as strong as they are here in the United, the United States, but we got many that are a long way from, from that situation. And a number of those are some of our major export competitors out there in the world. Yeah. And we won't name any names, but a couple of those are probably the biggest countries that export rice to the United States. So I agree, if, if, you're, if you're eating rice, if you're an American and, and eating rice, your best bet is to eat U.S. grown rice uh, from many different aspects, from a safety standpoint, as well as from an economic standpoint for the USA. Yeah, totally agree. So I don't have this conversation with many people, but um, I want to have it with you today because I think it's something on consumers' minds, and I think that you can help us set this the record straight. But the hot topic right now is arsenic, as you know, and arsenic and rice, Dr. Lumscombe. So I want you to help me explain this to consumers about why rice is not dangerous, why arsenic and rice is not dangerous. Um, and hopefully they can kind of hear that from an expert in the field level. Yeah, and I'll, let me start out by saying why we talk about arsenic and rice at all. And basically, since rice is grown for the most part under flooded, which makes it under anaerobic conditions, there's no oxygen or very little oxygen available. Arsenic in the soil becomes much more available to the, to the plant to uptake than it does to upland crops such as corn and soybeans and wheat. All of that being said, we have done a tremendous amount of, of research. Uh, many people have in, in all of the states and we feel very comfortable that the arsenic level of, of U.S. produced rice is well within the safety limits. Uh, you know, there's arsenic in everything you eat. Absolutely, everything you eat has arsenic in it. Why is why do we talk about it more in rice? Because uh, it, it's questioned a little bit more in rice. Sometimes there may be a little bit higher levels of of arsenic in rice than in in say in wheat, simply because of the way it's grown. But it's safe. I mean, you know, the Food and Drug Administration is very, very stringent on what they will allow and what they will not allow. And they feel very comfortable with arsenic levels in rice. I feel very comfortable with arsenic levels in rice. I've been eating rice a lot all of my life, just as you have. And, you know, there, there's a lot of things that, you know, perhaps Americans eat too much of. Uh, there's no doubt about that, but I, I feel very comfortable that Americans are not putting themselves at risk by eating rice and eating a lot of rice yeah. because of the arsenic levels. Well, I just think it's important for consumers to realize that rice is a healthy part of their lifestyle and that many things that it's been demonized for is not really true and that the U.S. farmer really is you know, the true steward of sustainability and one of the first to be kind of on the sustainability platform and try to use more sustainable practices, including lower pesticide usage. And, and um, you know, that's part of this whole podcast is to tell that story and tell the story of the U.S. farmer and what people like you have done at the research station. So, you know, lastly, I just want to talk about how rice can be part of a healthy diet, because a lot of people think that, you know, rice will um, what is it that we say that um, eat rice because potatoes make your butt big? 
uh, that's kind of a saying in Louisiana, but, you know, again, um, I do feel like, you know, people have demonized it a little bit for the fact that it's carbohydrate, but as you and I know, um, rice can really be part of a healthy diet. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it goes without saying that, it, you know, you can eat too much of anything, but, you know, I feel confident that rice is a very healthy food. Uh, it's, it's high in, in a number of important vitamins and minerals, especially brown rice uh, that we're seeing people eat more and more of. Not, not that, that white rice, white milled rice is not healthy for you as well. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a very important part of the American, you know, the diets of, as you mentioned earlier, rice is probably the most important food crop in the world. And it's a staple food crop for many people. It's not a staple food crop for most people here in the United States, uh, unless you're from South Louisiana, then it becomes more of a staple food crop. But no, I think it's very healthy. I think it's very nutritious. Uh, and I think more people ought to eat more of it. Yeah, well, there's a lot of studies out there that actually would prove that if you have rice as your, one of your primary um, staples of your diet, that you're you know, less likely to be obese and um, exactly. or, you know, more likely to kind of have an active lifestyle, those kind of things. So I think in general, um, making rice more part of your diet, again, to your, to, you know, your point, you know, everything in moderation, right? Maybe we shouldn't put so much gravy on top of it, but I do think that it can be part of an active lifestyle and that we, we can incorporate it more, especially as Americans. And we can feel really good about where it's coming from, from our U.S. farmers and from people that we know, um, you know, in our communities. So again, um, thank you for sharing your recipe with me as well for my sister Patches. I know she's excited to try your recipe. She called me this morning and said, oh my gosh, this looks amazing. So I, I know that she's excited to share that um, and very much a Louisiana Creole. We're going to try to get some good andouille sausage to go with it. Um, so I know that everybody will be looking forward to that. But again, thank you, my friend, for being on the show today and really appreciate your friendship and most of all your contribution to the rice industry. So um, it was truly a pleasure. Pleasure on my part as well. Thank you. And I, I look for, I haven't seen any of your podcasts, but I